Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. time on the Ben Jarowski Show. As I speak, it's Thursday, November 4th, 2021. The newspapers are filled with gloom and doom and horror. I'm just going to read one headline just to give you an idea of what's going on in this world at this time. New York Times. Bruised at polls. Democrats look at their missteps. How many times have I seen a variation of that headline? How many? How many times? Every midterm election, Democrats get clobbered by the Republicans. And then they look into the mirror and go, what did we do wrong? How should we do it differently? I never see Republicans crying like that. You ever notice that? When they lose, they just say they didn't really lose. It's just lie, make stuff up. Seems the public buys it. Anyway, that's the headlines in the New York Times. We'll probably get into some of that uh, discussion with my next, uh, with my guests, my distinguished guests, as I do with all distinguished guests on the Ben Jarowski Show. And every guest on the Ben Jarowski Show is distinct, distinguished, or we wouldn't bring them on. I'm going to ask her to introduce herself. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Well, I think I might quit while I'm ahead if I'm being called distinguished. I like that. So thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. I'm Rebecca Sive, a longtime uh, women's rights activist, uh, active in politics and other worthy causes in Chicago since the first Mayor Daley was mayor. Uh, and uh, I think we're here because lately I've been writing about women in politics, uh, actually have written three books in the last 10 years, about ready to break out. But um, there's lots to talk about on that front as well as to write about. And I think this week's a good one to do that, given what happened in the elections, as you just pointed out. So happy to be here, happy to talk about what's going on and, and share my perspective. All right, let's do that. Uh, and what happened, of course, we've been talking about it uh, all day today and all day yesterday, where there's two uh, gubernatorial elections in this country, one in Virginia, one in New Jersey. Uh, the Dems won in New were victorious in New Jersey, but it was much closer than people thought. And then somehow or other, uh, a, a MAGA guy who's pretending he's not a MAGA guy was victorious uh, in uh, Virginia, defeating Terry McAuliffe. I have many issues with Democrats returning time after time after time. This is me speaking, not Rebecca, to uh, Clintonian candidates like Terry McAuliffe. Never seem to learn, never seem to learn. All right, before we uh, get your thoughts on things like this, Rebecca, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your uh, your latest project, Make Her Story Your Story, her story being one word, H-E-R-S-T-O-R-Y, a journal workbook for women activists. Go ahead. So yes, her story as opposed or in addition to his story, right? So the idea here, uh, several ideas. One is that there are you know, now several generations of women who are coming up in uh, neighborhood organizing, community work, political work, running for office. And uh, one of the things that can help them is to you know, both 
solo and in a group kind of figure out what they want to do and how they want to do it. And of course, there's lots of training for that. There's books you can read. But what I thought might be uh, helpful is a sort of a journal, a writing journal with sort of inspirational prompts and that kind of thing. You may not know this, but journaling is a very big deal uh, among women, particularly younger women. Um, so the idea was to uh, publish a journal. It's now uh, for pre-sale available and will be published on January 2nd of 2022. So since I'm promoting, I'll just say it's the perfect holiday gift you can promise all these women in your life. Um, so the idea there is to help women sort of orient their work uh, in the public sphere to the extent they want to run for office, figure out how they may want to do that, then get the help they need. Um, and I think the other piece of it is just to say, you know, alluding to what you said earlier, that, um, you know, the political news is so up and down, a lot of it's depressing. But when we look, when we sort of take the long view there's a lot of positive change that's happened over the decades since you've been covering things at the reader and I've been doing my work. So I think that trying to be upbeat here, encouraging, remembering that all politics is local. You can make a difference in your own community and maybe someday you'll run for president too. So that's my latest project. And I've been, it's kind of a pandemic um, piece of work. You know, it was just, so grim, right? Everything was grim. And what I kept thinking about was, I want to find something that's, you know, how I can be helpful. And I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, I'm not an EMT, but I am an organizer and a writer. And so I just uh, wrote this journal and I hope it'll be useful. Yeah, I hope it will be too. I just want to say one thing. Uh... Uh, I, I don't call them journals. I call them diaries. This, this is where I come from. But uh, the, the viewers can't see this. Uh, but Rebecca, you can because we are uh, we can see each other through this, the powers of Nate's camera. Here's my high school diary, Rebecca. Okay, oh I was God. doing this long before it was fashionable. I will now read from my high school diary. Uh, better not. Uh, it's too embarrassing to read that thing. But I keep it around just to remind myself. Mm -hmm. Well, that's <laughs> the thing. The diary, exactly. Yeah, diary. I still keep a diary. All right, Rebecca. Now you alluded to the fact that you and I have been around for a long time, uh, and it is true. I think I first met you. The year was 1984. I don't know if you remember, but I do. And uh, uh, I was doing a story for the Chicago Reporter, the late great Chicago Reporter. It's um, it's out of ex existence now. It was a story about black Jewish relationships in the aftermath of uh, Jesse Jackson. And uh, the campaign and the Jaime Town remark and John McDermott sent Kevin Black, the and myself around. We interviewed a whole bunch of people. And uh, I, I still remember our interview. This is way back when she was a, a young lady. Alas, she was in her teens. I was old enough to vote then. <laughs> I had to get a parent permission slip to get her to talk to me. Um, right. So just think, let's reflect for a moment. 1984, Jesse uh, Lewis Jackson running uh, for president. Harold Washington, mayor of the city of Chicago, under siege from Eddie Verdolak and Ed Burke and all the other white aldermen in the city council were, just, were, were Trump before Trump. Uh, and now here we are in 2021. Good Lord, where does the time go, Rebecca? But that's not the point. The point is, what has improved from that day, 1984? Take it away. Well, if you want to, you know, we could start certainly by talking about uh, what happened beginning while Harold was mayor. Um, you know, he instituted a lot of policies that the city had never had before, uh, uh, certainly related to uh, issues related to women. Specifically, I think one of the important things he did, really history making or her story making, um, in terms of what we're talking about today, is he was the first mayor of Chicago, and of course Chicago was the second largest city then, um, to appoint a woman to a line department commissioner position. And it was Streets and Sand, and then it was Department of Planning. And this may sound like trivia to people, but it's really not, because what that showed uh, is that women did not have to be confined to sort of typical female jobs, like head of social services or something like that. And that trend has continued. I don't think it's 
uh, you know, a big deal to anyone today to see women holding those kinds of jobs, whether it's in government or in the private sector or elsewhere. So, you know, among the positive changes has um, have been the uh, ability and opportunity for women to achieve uh, executive positions, although in fairly modest numbers when you talk about elected office. And we should definitely talk about that. I mean, other changes, I think, referring back to uh, our first conversation about Black-Jewish relations, I think that, you know, again, beginning with Harold, who had substantial Jewish support uh, from the very beginning of his first campaign, um, you know, there's just a much, I'm not a Pollyanna, but I think there's a much greater understanding about uh, why the interests of those two groups are aligned. And certainly their voting patterns reflect that. Um, most African-Americans vote Democratic and most Jews do too, whether it's in Chicago or elsewhere. So I think that's really, really important. Um, when you look at the Congress, certainly you see uh, Congress people, whether they're Black or Jewish, among the most progressive, supporting progressive uh, policies. Um, so I think that's a positive. I, I guess I would say also that... Um, if we are talking about civic life, that at that time there were very few women, uh, you know, you could count on one hand, maybe two, the number of women partners at law firms, right? Um, it was just beginning to change. Um, and likewise, if you looked at the corporate sector, you wouldn't see a whole lot of women, again, in line positions. What you were seeing then were women running, you know, human relations personnel departments, things like that. Um, so there's been a real shift in the opportunity. It hasn't changed, and this is the bad news, it hasn't changed the fundamental fact that there's still profound you know, sex discrimination and race discrimination, Chicago and elsewhere. But it is the case that the numbers are better than they were then. Um, I guess I would say also, and this gets to be particularly noticeable in the political arena, uh, young women are deciding, and there's a phrase that's now going around in, in the political world, run as you are. So um, I'm old enough to remember that if you were interested in running for office, um, you had to be married to a man with children. And when Barbara Mikulski, as you probably recall, first ran for Congress in 1976, she was anomalous in both respects, right? And now it's, you know, we have any number of women who are young, who aren't married to men, who may not have children. I mean, women are deciding that we, I have something to contribute. I don't have to conform to a particular modality and they are winning and you know there are various examples of that so um i think there's a much greater willingness on the part of uh women to say yes i know enough to do this and on the part of voters to look at people and not see whether they fit some stereotypical you know profile but are people who can actually do a good job Barbara Mikulski, uh, the former senator from the state of Maryland, uh, is uh, a little history lesson uh, for some of our younger listeners. Uh, Rebecca, so let's see, 1984, I got to do the math, for that's 37 years ago. And uh, so when you look back and reflect, and we'll, we'll catch up and talk about the current uh, situation uh, for women candidates, but when you look back and reflect, um, are there any things that uh, you and other activists of your generation did that you say, yeah, maybe that didn't work out. Uh, you can learn from our mistakes as well as from our successes or any, anything like that, that uh, you, any like a political regret that you would have. Go ahead. Uh, that's an interesting question. I, I guess it's not a regret, but it's something I've learned in the subsequent years. Um, you know, I, it, it it's, it was the pattern until very recently that uh, women who wanted to run for office were told that they had to go up the steps of the ladder, right? And well, maybe someday you can be a member of Congress, but meanwhile, you got to do this, 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 and this. 
Meanwhile, men weren't doing that, right? We saw that every day. What we saw men doing was saying, gee whiz, I want to be a U.S. senator. I guess I'll run for U.S. senator, even if I've never held elected office before. Not to name any names, but we could. Uh, you know, no woman in the state of Illinois, probably anywhere, ever did that. So I think that, you know, I, I, I guess, as I said, I wouldn't call it a regret, but I'm really sorry we didn't sort of look at that and say, gee whiz, why are we being held to a different standard and why don't we encourage the women we know who are running for office uh, to go for it? And I, I'll just tell you one story in that respect, which I think is illuminating. Um, the senior senator from Michigan, Debbie Stabenow, who you know, who's one of the uh, you know senior leadership members in the U.S. Senate, uh, Debbie and I came up together in the National Women's Political Caucus way back in the day, and she, at the time, was married to a guy who decided to run for county commission, I think it was, in Lansing, in you know, the state capitol. He lost. She, she ran his campaign and helped him out, but he wasn't a very good candidate. He said to her, you're a great candidate, and you don't have to know every single thing about XYZ policy in order for you to run. And in fact, she did. And, you know, almost 50 years later, here she is in the U.S. Senate, the only woman, for instance, who's ever chaired the Ag Committee, which is a huge deal, maybe not to Chicagoans, but certainly to the state of Illinois. So I think that the point there is that we were also um, believed that we had to know everything about everything. And, oh, maybe I need to go, you know, even though I've been attending every school board meeting and I know all about my public schools Maybe I have to go get a master's degree in education or something like that, right? So there was a really a different frame of mind about the knowledge base, not that you want to be ignorant, but that you're, you know enough and you're willing to work hard and learn. So that, it's not a regret, although it is the case, I think, that some women, you know, may have, the process was slower than it could have been for them. Yeah. Uh, the the one exception to the rule that sort of proves what you were saying uh, when you were talking, I just immediately thought of Jane Byrne, uh, former mayor of the city of Chicago, ran for mayor in 1979. She never run for any other office. She immediately went for the top. And guess what, folks? She got elected mayor, which just goes to show waiting around for your time. You may lose your time if you follow what I just said. Uh, well, mayor Jane Byrne. Yeah, I, I think you're right. She, But she... Uh, she is the exception that proves the rule. It's also true, however, as you know, that she did run a city department for a while, not a big one, but she did run one and before she ran. And she was also someone who, for better or for worse, had come up in the political, the democratic political establishment of that era. So my guess is she knew a fair amount. Um, oh, she knew a lot. It, it, it actually just proves your point. And now that I think about it, she knew a lot. She was schooled in politics. Uh, she learned from the old Daily, not the baby Daily youngsters, but the old Richard J. Daily that Rebecca knows all about. She learned from him, and she used those tools that she learned. And so it's like, I'm not running for alderman. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I'm not. I'm going straight to the top, and I'm going to use all the things I learned and know and mastered uh, to my advantage. You know, I she was victorious. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say you reminded me of another sort of vignette from that time, which is that. At the time she was running, I was uh, for mayor. I was, I think this is right. I was running a women's center here in Chicago, and uh, we had formed this coalition of all these different women's organizations, really kind of wonderful. And we wanted to have her come and speak. That was not happening. This was in the heart of the time when the first ERA ratification efforts were going on in Illinois. And, you know, very important time in terms of issues related to women's equality. And she actually had some sort of office. I don't remember the specifics, so you can't hold me to it. She had some sort of office in the same building as we had the center in, the Monadnock building. And I actually ran into her in the bathroom, and I kind of went up to her and, you know, I said, hey, you know, we're not politely but firmly. And I said, why can't you do this? And, you know, she just... She couldn't see her way, which not many of the men could either, you know, to sitting down and talking to women's groups. You know, that wasn't happening. Yeah. So that's another thing that's a very big change, obviously.
by the way, uh, I've been recommending TV shows uh, to Rebecca to watch. We'll get to Hillary and impeachment. Yes, folks, you know I'm talking about that obsessively. Uh, but the ERA ratification, there was a great series that came out. I watched it. Uh, we actually had a conversation on the air with uh, some folks uh, who were very active in the ERA movement back in the 70s. Uh, Miss America, I don't know if you saw that one, but urge right. you to. Right. Oh, you actually saw. Okay. I was going to say everybody. No, right, I, no, no, no. I mean, I'm saying right because I knew about it. I didn't watch it because, you know, here you are talking. I lived through it. Yeah, no. I, I didn't need I, the TV I, version. I, I have a, a issues with that. If I may just share this, like if I really know something well, it's hard for me to watch it because if particularly if it's a painful outcome, like the ERA didn't pass, it's kind of painful. Uh, so it, I, I stalled and delayed and a friend of mine, Terry Cosgrove, you, you gotta watch it. You gotta watch it. So I finally, all right, Terry, just to get him off my back, I watched it. And then I had him come on the show with, a, he put the panel together. We had a great conversation about it. So uh, it's, 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 no, I think a lot of people thought it was good. They learned a lot, uh, but it's still relevant, uh, for today. All right. Uh, so back then, uh, women were, uh, a little more reluctant to run for office and now it's more run as you are. And I find this, um, I struggle with this one. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. It doesn't seem to be on the other side of the aisle where MAGA reigns the same kind of reservation. So, uh, the <laughs> leaders of MAGA, some of them are women. Marjorie Taylor Greene comes to mind. And I believe her first run for office was for Congress. And once she's in Congress, she doesn't let anything stop her. I mean, I think she's idiotic. Uh, I don't know what your opinion about her is, Rebecca. And I think she's destructive. Uh, but I got to say, young Democratic women, if you want a role model for someone who does not care what people think, it is not willing is to be stifled in any way by public opinion. You might want to look at MAGA because they have some examples which we might want to emulate uh, in terms of the sense of determination. Your thoughts on that? Yes. Um, determination is can be admired in the abstract, but I think that um, it's really important to put determination in the context of what someone's values are. I mean, not to be too grim about it, but Hitler was determined, you know? I mean, so I think that um, what I would say is, yes, you have to be determined and persistent and all of that, but the reason for doing it in the first place is not self-aggrandizement. It's to serve the people and do good work and pass laws that make people's lives better. And that's not something that she's interested in, in the slightest. So I, in, so in that respect, I really don't think she's much of a role model. No, she's not a role model in terms of the way, uh, the initiatives that she leads or the rhetoric that she espouses or her behavior. Uh, but I would say she is a role model in terms of just going for it. You're right. In the abstract, absent, absolutely any policy discussion, uh, I, I do believe that you can learn a little something from her. Uh, all right. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to leave people think I'm suggesting, uh, that, uh, democratic women should be like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, so we'll move on from her, but I do note that it's, uh, it's very bizarre uh, that on the other side of the aisle, there doesn't seem to be any uh, hesitation whatsoever. Um, all right. So let's talk about Hillary Clinton for a moment. Um, and uh, the her inability to win in 2016, even though she got more votes, I always point that out. Um, and what that says about um, America's attitudes, the American electorate's attitudes toward uh, women in the most powerful positions of all. You talked about executives, how women have had more success in legislative runs, not executives. Well, this is the pinnacle. She was running for president of the United States. Uh, and uh, she lost to Donald John Trump. So talk a little bit about what you think the that says about the voters' attitudes toward women candidates. Well, I guess I would just step back uh, to the 2008 election, you know, when she and President Obama were competing and, and he prevailed. And, um, you know, on paper, 
in, in you know, lived experience, as they term it, she had a lot more um, experience relevant to the job uh, than he did. And in terms of federal work uh, on federal issues and the kinds of matters that would come to the Oval Office. And yet, uh, you know, he prevailed. And while not handily, it wasn't all that difficult. And so I think that the lessons about women in executive office, um, and Hillary in particular, can start with that, that that the country uh, and the voters were, and, and voters who subsequently reversed themselves and voted for Trump in, in some instances, um, in some states, uh, were willing to vote for a black man and not a woman. And so there's a very interesting uh, sort of, interesting isn't exactly the right word, but there's a sort of something to be figured out there about the issues of race and sex discrimination and how American voters look at that and whether they're ultimately willing uh, to pick, to select a man over a woman, notwithstanding. So I think that, and that's in fact what happens. So I think the lesson I take in the first instance, starting with 08, is that this very deep uh, gender discrimination, this belief that women shouldn't be, you know, sole decision makers as presidents are, um, runs as deep as anyone can imagine, right? Which is why the victories of African-American women these days are so astounding and wonderful. They have prevailed against both kinds of discrimination. So when you then go forward and look at 2016, you know, the, the contrast is uh, equally um, challenging in a way that is she again was, you know, overwhelmingly better qualified. And yet uh, millions of white people for the most part, including uh, a majority of white women, um, voted for her opposition, another man, this one happened to be white. So what does that tell you? I think in the first place, it tells you that no matter what anyone says to the contrary, uh, the belief that women, people don't want, uh, certainly most men, I think 70% of all white men voted for Trump in, in uh, the first, in that election. Um, probably similar numbers the second this last time. You know, they just don't want a woman telling them what to do is how they see it, as opposed to looking at the person and saying, this person knows a lot about how to get laws passed, and not to mention she's really interested in the kinds of policies that will benefit me and my family. I mean, if you look at the, for instance, the average family income in the United States and the fact that in most families there need to be two adult workers, the kinds of policies that you know Hillary Clinton proposed, um, the kind that Joe Biden is proposing, are enormously beneficial to these families in which, again, these white families in which uh, many cases they voted for Trump, or in the case of Virginia, they voted for, I can't even say his name, I haven't absorbed it yet. <laughs> That's okay. The governor who will not be named. The governor-elect yeah, who will not be named. Like, uh, I, you know, I saw he was the head of the, you know, he was a member of or a partner or whatever his title was of the Carlisle Group. Well, I suppose you could learn a lot about international finance in that role, but you don't learn a lot about what's happening in the, you know, Appalachian communities of Virginia where people are, you know, starving. No, I... Uh... We're, we're doing a lot of analysis, uh, Rebecca, in the aftermath of uh, Tuesday's election with uh, every guest that comes on the show from, and our guests are a lot of different backgrounds. So I, I try to learn everybody's perspective, listen to what they say and their thoughts on this one. And, um, and I also have not seen, uh, not yet seen a breakdown uh, of exit polls that show like what portion, proportion of women voted for him and, uh, and, so it's hard for me at this moment to have an immediate uh, th like thought about it. Uh, but it is striking that, and when this gets into the terms of women, that the issue, follow me on this, that seemed to at least just draw a lot of attention uh, in the, the weeks heading into the showdown was uh, school issues and 
parental rights in a classroom. And, and this one really caught me off guard. Uh, Rebecca, I must confess, I didn't think it would have the resonance it would. Uh, and the notion that somehow or other teaching children that slavery in this country was evil would be viewed as a violation of a parent's right to teach the child what he or she thinks the child should learn or would somehow or other be seen as uh, a negative or destructive to white children caught me off guard and that 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 could be harnessed as a political force to elect a guy who would raise your taxes effectively by not raising the taxes on the richest people I'm, sometimes I think I know politics in this country, Rebecca, and then something comes along and I realize I got a lot to learn. So how do you interpret the, uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think in terms of, of what happened there, something that I read that really struck me is <laughs> apparently I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, Terry McAuliffe made some statement to the effect that, uh, the teachers should prevail in, in discussions about what ought to go on in the classroom and parents should just, so to speak, shut up and listen to the teachers. And I, I find that, I mean, it was a devastating statement and he spent a lot of time trying to recover from it and, and didn't. But I, so I think that, you know, the point there being, I don't think it would have necessarily changed the minds of those who believe that, that, Children shouldn't be taught that the Civil War was about slavery. Um, but I do think it's the case that uh, it kind of built into a narrative. And this goes, again, back to the Hillary and, and other lessons from other campaigns. This notion that um, in, a, in a society where there's so much income inequality, lack of mobility, uh, you know, has changed so much in our adult lifetimes, uh, people want to keep the little that they have in many cases, and they're afraid that others are going to get what little they have, and they'll have even less. And so there's a sort of turning inward and a turning toward, well, it was the good old days back in, you know, the 1950s when my parents were our grandparents were, you know, adults. And I want that again, forgetting that the economy wouldn't permit that the way it's structured these days. So that's just by way of saying that I think that the this discussion about what to teach um, is just part of this looking backwards, looking inwards, thinking that there was some other time when when we, as this is the, the predominantly, again, white people who voted for this new governor, when we were in charge and when we had good jobs and when we could prevail and, you know, there's a really, um, this is the unsolved uh, conundrum, is that the word, of the Democratic Party, how to reach out to white rural voters and, and get them to understand that their fortunes are going to be better with the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. And, you know, when Hillary made her mistake on that front it was also devastating she talked about deplorables right well uh the the point that i saw that uh, struck me is not just the rural voters it was suburban voters uh and suburban voters had been trending democratic it was the so it was the suburban vote uh for joe biden uh, in uh georgia that was helpful uh and in uh Pennsylvania, that was helpful. And so what, what it seemed to say is that, man, they're not very loyal. Suburban voters, uh, to put it mildly, they abandoned the Democratic cause within a year. And I'm, I'm searching for a reason why. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say that both in this instance with the gubernatorial in Virginia and in the 2016 race of Trump and Hillary, black turnout was down. Had African-American turnout uh, been the same for Hillary as it was for President Obama, she would have won Michigan, right? She would have won. It, the difference was 10,000 votes between, <coughs> excuse me, between Obama's, um, in, in terms of Trump having, he had 10,000 more. Pardon the bad grammar there. But um, 
So the point there is that, you know, yes, there's an issue with white voters changing their minds. There's also a substantial issue about African-American voters uh, not turning out to the same degree when it's a white candidate. And I think that, you know, uh, that's problematic. Uh, on this show, we call it the Delmarie Cobb theorem, uh, name for a frequent guest on our show, political uh, strategist Delmarie Cobb comes on the show all the time, and she's always uh, explaining to our listeners, she'll say, Ben, there's two ways Republicans deal with black voters. One, they try to make it very difficult for them to vote, which is what uh, repressive election laws are about. Uh, and two, they feed a sense of cynicism that breeds apathy, uh, that there's no point in voting because uh, both candidates are the same. That's how Republicans deal uh, with uh, black voters. And we got to give credit to Delmarie Cobb. We call it the Delmarie Cobb theorem. And I think it, it actually, it, the Democrats help them, Rebecca, uh, when they can't do something like pass a voting rights law, if, if you follow what I'm saying. You like help feed the cynicism. And yes, it's all Republicans are lined up to block the law, but the Democrats get it, get it together to pass that. Well, Go ahead. I, you know, I, I consider Delmarie a friend and I have the utmost respect for her and I agree with her analysis. It's also the case, and I don't know how she probably has better ideas about this than I, but it is also the case that in the current political world that we all live in, um, I'm not, it, it's not speaking to the merits, obviously. Uh, all of us, we may need to find some new ways uh, to, uh, to um, get out the vote, as certainly people like Stacey Abrams have shown how that can be done under the most difficult of circumstances. So I think that there are people who can, who can lead that, and, and she's leading that, as are others. But I think that the expectation that, for instance, even if the Voting Rights Act you know, had moved forward yesterday when it didn't, um, that things would be that much easier is not right. You're nodding your, it is not a reasonable expectation. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of like, it's the same as with other issues. Pretty soon, you know, women's right to choose is going to be overturned by the Supreme Court. That happened in 1973, you know, Roe was adopted. So, we're regressing on any number of fronts and we're just going to have to figure out new strategies to prevail, even if it's piecemeal. All right, let's talk about that. That was my next question anyway, and you led right into it. The politics of abortion. I had thought uh, that in the immediate aftermath of the uh, Texas abortion law and uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court punting uh, on that matter effectively, uh, that it would be a rallying cry uh, for Democratic voters, particularly women, and uh, that would help Terry McAuliffe uh, and in the very areas like those suburban areas I was just alluding to. Uh, that's what I expected. It didn't work out that way. Um, so talk about the, the politics of abortion as a motivating force for MAGA conservative voters who are against abortion and as a motivating force for whatever we call them, progressive voters or independents who presumably believe in a woman's right to choose? Well, there's no question this has been documented in a number of books, um, including a very recent one by a woman named Kitty Colbert that I recommend to everyone. Uh, there's no question that back in the... Uh, right after Roe was adopted, that the right wing uh, developed a concerted strategy to use abortion as this sort of flag bearing issue. That's not really a good way to put it, but for uh, mobilizing conservative voters on other issues as well. And they have consistently, as probably Terry has said on the show too, um, they have consistently used abortion as the rallying cry and you know, spilled out from there with their conservative views and been successful in that. So here we are. And I think that the, um, on the, on the progressive side, uh, you know, the main, um, this is oversimplifying a complicated subject, but, you know, the main sort of 
messaging has been women's right to control their own bodies and the trimester formula in Roe. And uh, for various reasons, uh, the latter uh, analysis has been greatly questioned and in part because of medical advancements. So you really then have to fall back on this notion that, you know, women should be able to control their own bodies. And that feeds directly into what we were talking about before, this notion that well, if they're able to control their reproductive history, then, hey, they can run for mayor against me and win because they're not going to be home taking care of babies, for instance. So there's a very direct uh, connection between um, prohibiting women from controlling their reproductive uh, lives and their ability to participate in public life. And I think that, that uh, you know, if mistakes have been made, I'm not saying that they have. Uh, I think that it's, again, there's new messaging needed for younger generations about the fact that that is what this is about. I mean, you can have a, uh, you can decide for yourself about your own reproductive health care and life and choices, but, but make sure you remember here that, that, um, when those uh, anti-women policies become law, you, like everyone else, are going to be precluded from the kind of opportunities uh, you've grown to expect and feel that you deserve and, and do deserve. So you'll see, those of you who I hope will buy Make Her Story Your Story, that I talk about this in the book and in the journal, and I use the the you know the issue of abortion and reproductive freedom for women as for exactly what it is. I mean, this sort of double whammy of overturning Roe on one hand and no you know paid childcare on the other is all about prohibiting women from engaging in public life, whether as workers or otherwise, uh, in the most fundamental way, you know, any human should be able to do and leaving the field to men. And, you know, that's, that's some, that's what this is about. And, and, and so I think that what's needed is uh, some way of making that clear uh, to the millions and millions of women of childbearing age and who are also in the workforce. Yeah. Uh, somebody was asleep at the switch in uh, Virginia. That's for certain uh, that that was more not more of a powerful issue. And I know here in Illinois, uh, the uh, pro-choice activists are a lot more vigilant. I'll say this about Illinois pro-choice activists. They don't play. And I watched what uh, they did to Rauner. That was our former governor, Bruce Rauner, 2014, 2018. Thought he was like got elected by assuring women uh, in the state of Illinois that he would at the would be uh, on their side in this issue. And then as as soon as he thought was challenged on the right, he abandoned women, threw them under the bus. I was all getting ready to sell them out, throw away years and years of his and his wife's support for abortion rights and personal pack one plan. And they came at him hard. Uh, <laughs> and then I get great delight out of this because then he got challenged on the right on this very issue. So I think I'll, a little good news in my humble opinion, Rebecca, and I, I hope you share this, that uh, the pro-choice movement is a little more vigilant uh, in Illinois than it is in other states. Clearly, it's asleep in the state of Virginia, uh, in my humble opinion. By the way, yeah, this think... must really... Go ahead. Your thoughts. No, I was going to say, I agree with you. Illinois is sort of a... You know, we lead we lead in this respect of fighting and fighting successfully, no question. Yeah, don't play around. They learn. They all learn from the machine, fighting the machine. You know, like Rebecca started off, she was fighting the, the Democratic machine. That's how you learn. <laughs> Down into, I don't know what their Virginia, what they learned from. I don't know. I, 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 I haven't studied it enough. Hopefully our, the listeners won't sort of think that Virginia trumps everything. You know, elections swing back and forth all the time. By the way, and we also learned that you got you to gotta take some kind of like painful irony out of this one. And we talk about this on the show all the time. Old MAGA, when the resistance to um, uh, the vaccine, is stealing every line that the abortion rights movement has ever come up with. It's my body. I can do what I want with it. Where are you in the fight for a woman's right to choose, MAGA? Hiding under a desk? 
you know, and uh, I just love it, man. You got uh, firefighters and police officers and basketball players and football players. Aaron Rodgers up in uh, Green Bay, I see you, uh, saying, it's my buddy. I want to do what I want with it. <laughs> it's like, hey, Aaron Rodgers, why don't you go down to Virginia and spread that message or in Texas? Uh, they they can't come up with ideas of their own, Rebecca, so they steal yours. Uh, all right, let's talk about a little good news on the political front. It's all been gloom and doom in this conversation. Rebecca, give us some good news uh, that you're feeling right now, uh, politically speaking. I've been jumping up and down, I should say, about Michelle Wu in Boston. And I think that she just, uh, following in the you know, her friend who she served with in the city council, Ayanna Presley, uh, who's in the Congress. Uh, and for those of you who may not know who she is, she's an African-American woman um, who spent some of her childhood, I think, in Chicago, too. But um, so the point there is that Michelle Wu, I believe, is in her mid-30s. She served in the city council in Boston uh, for, I think, eight or ten years. Um was very clear-headed about the policies, progressive policies that she felt ought to be implemented uh, and prevailed in this race against another woman, interestingly enough, uh, who was somewhat more in her policy. Come to find out, which I didn't know until I read all the news this week, that Wu is a sort of protege of Senator Elizabeth Warren, that she was a student of hers at Harvard Law School and as I read the story in the Times, uh, Warren sort of took her under her wing in terms of uh, her legal education and also her education in public policy. But here's a woman who's, you know, the child of immigrants, came up in a very modest economic circumstances. I mean, a lot of these people, of course, are exceptional. She's obviously brilliant, uh, you know, very well educated. And not all of us, you know, can do that. But the fact is that it's a pretty wonderful thing when um, people like Michelle Wu decide uh, to devote their lives to public service instead of to, you know, a big aid accounting firm or something like that. So, you know, I really and there she's just one of a number of examples. There are other um, the number of women mayors and women of color who are mayors is increasing right now. Um, so I take a lot of heart from that um, and encouragement. I think that um, the other good news here that I think about is that um, this has really only happened, it's been less than a decade. I, I wrote a book in 2013 called Every Day is Election Day and it was uh, a guide for running for office. And um, at that time, some of these challenges that we talked about earlier were still really prevalent. And at that time, there were maybe three or four organizations that were training women to run for office. Now there's, you know, I don't know much about the Republican side, but on the Democratic side, there's a dozen or something like that. And they're doing a great job and they're really finding these women like Michelle Wu. And I actually spoke a couple of weeks ago to a group of them uh, in Minnesota. And, um, you know, these are, you know, this isn't my generation or even the generation behind me. These are young women and, and they have decided. And I can tell you, it's an interesting thing. Um, I gave that speech on Zoom, of course, but on other occasions when I've spoken to groups like that in person, I've really been struck by the fact that these are not, you know, sort of starry-eyed or naive young women. You know, they're the kind of girls who, you know, played sports and were in the student government and Girl Scouts and whatever, and, you know, decided that this was something they wanted to do at a fairly young age. Now, some of them don't like to admit to that because it sounds like, oh, I was too ambitious. But the fact is you have to be too ambitious, male or female. So the point I'm making here is that these women aren't going to disappear once they find out, you know, that this is a hard road to hoe. They're going to stick with it. So, you know, whenever I sort of feel a little bit down about all this, I kind of look at all these newsletters I get and the you know, wonderful stories about these women, black, white, Asian, Native American. Um, look at Cori Bush from Missouri, another great example of a young 
you know, African-American woman now in the Congress. I don't believe she ever held elected office before. Um, you know, she talks about living in her car a few years ago. Uh, so I think that there's good news, you know, whether it's a matter of looking at increasing the numbers of women or increasing the numbers of people of color. There's a lot, lot to be pleased about. Um, there was somebody I saw. Oh, yes. I think it's a the new mayor. I think it's of Cincinnati. Uh, and, and then the repeat mayor reelected in Helena, Montana. Talk about conservative MAGA states. You know, a man of color. I mean, so I think there's good news out there. And I think the, the question is, as we've talked about, how to get so many people who care about this and want to do this to just, you know, step up and step in. All right. Well, that's a good spot as, uh, as any to uh, end the conversation, a little good news, and, and I'll uh, resist from going more gloom and doom uh, at you. I also <laughs> urge everybody to check out the interview I did today with Sarah Bingaman, a great activist from downstate Illinois uh, who talks about trying to win over uh, rural voters, uh, Trump voters, and uh, she talks about it in terms of economic terms, jobs, jobs, jobs. Uh, really, it's I think they're good interviews to listen to back to back if I must say so myself Rebecca uh, one you just heard and uh, Sarah Bingaman so check that one out Rebecca before I let you go tell folks where they can get a, a hold of make her story your story uh well the easiest place to go is click on your favorite internet book site and there it is to be ordered uh so bookshop Amazon Barnes and Noble's Target uh so yeah take your pick go ahead and um Think about it as a gift for all the women in your life who you want to encourage. I really think that uh, along with other gifts you may give them, this one will be helpful to them too. All right. Very good. Rebecca Sive, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to come on my show. I appreciate it. And uh, I also want to thank uh, our good friend, Lori Glenn, who suggested this. So Lori, I, I listen to you. Okay. Uh, anyway, thank you very much, Rebecca. Uh, and I also want to thank DJ Nate. You did a great job. Thanks, Ben. All right. Very good. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 